Good morning. Let's go to Ephesians chapter number 1. This is our 22nd sermon out of this chapter already. Just so you know that I can do other uh, themes or books quicker, uh, next week I'll be at a Bible conference at Cornerstone Bible Institute. I'm uh, responsible for 19 sermons next week, from Monday through Friday, and uh, I have to cover all of Colossians and Philippians in that time. So I'm doing two books in 19 sermons, and here I'm doing 22 sermons already, and we've only made it to verse 18. So I, I have a little variety in there, but I like going slow when I'm allowed to do that and take the time to to look carefully at the passage that is before us, because there's so much. Every time I dig in it, I say, wow, there's something else. I wish I had more time to share. That, uh, so I just keep coming back to the same verses sometimes. But here today, as we look at God's investment in you, verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1 in Ephesians, this is part of Paul's prayer, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. We're going to stop there, even though verse 20 keeps going with great stuff too. Uh, But this is, amount for us to tackle today. So let's ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we're entering into your word again with the opportunity to learn from it, uh, to be challenged by it, to be uh, shaped by it. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we will be receptive to what you teach us, uh, willing participants in the work that you're doing in our hearts and lives. Indeed, our Our need and your work are the same here. We want to be like Jesus. So help us to understand more of that work that you're doing. And do your great work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here where we're looking at this passage, verse 18 and 19, we saw a couple weeks ago uh, what we have. It is the hope of his calling. We saw last week... Uh, what he has, and that is, we are his inheritance. We saw that at the end of verse number 18. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And today, I, I wasn't exactly sure what to call this, except what he has given to us. We're going to talk about his power today. His power. And you can see that clearly expressed in verse number uh, uh, 19, when it talks about power. Now, this is a rather interesting thing, but look again at verse 18 and 19 with me and notice something that really needs to be underscored. If you don't write it in your Bible, at least put it in your mind or put it in your heart. We see it is His calling, right? You see that word? His calling. His calling. His inheritance. You see that combination there too? His inheritance. What do you see in verse 19? Whose power? His power. His power. We have to underscore that. So we understand as we go through this this section here today, we're not talking about our power. 
We're talking about his power. That's an entirely different thing. We live in a society that power is important. We, we uh, realize that um, so many different ways power is, is in the forefront of importance. In sports, power is important. In politics, power is important. Uh, in business, in personal fitness, we aim for something, don't we? And that's strength and power. And in military scenarios, we realize that power makes a difference. Uh, uh, we believe power. We, in general, as, as a society, as a, a world, we believe power might be the result of one's position. They, they have power because of their position, their, their uh, title, perhaps. Uh, we think sometimes power to be the result of one's family. Now, some of us from years gone by, if you'd say names like Rockefeller, say like Kennedy, names that had power because of the things they can do in society. And sometimes we associate power with family. Sometimes we think it's education that makes power. How much do we know in education? Talent. That's becoming more forefront now. Talent equals power. The talented people are the powerful ones. They, they have the say, don't they? Uh, discipline. Maybe it's more in the, the tune of uh, those training in military circles or such, but they, they realize discipline is so important. If you have discipline, then you have the power uh, in the scenario that you need. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just your own physical physique. You, you work real hard at uh, uh, shaping yourself that you might have power or popularity. Popularity is power now, isn't it? Popularity. I want to ask you a simple question, and I know you could answer this easily, but uh, which of those scenarios I set before you are the things that bring power to the church? Is it position? Is it uh, some sort of name that we might have? Is it our education? Is it our talents? Is it discipline? Is it uh, our own structure, perhaps? Or, or is it popularity? Is that what brings power to the church? That makes it powerful. That makes it successful and able to do what it, what it wants to do. Of course, over the years, I don't know, maybe it's been 15, 20 years, perhaps, uh, the church growth movement has been rather big, in, in, uh, especially in publishing companies and, and programs, churches purchase and such like that. And, and uh, many of these church growth experts, I've listened to their, their offers, I've, I've seen their push. Mostly it's aimed at success. Success in the church. I, that's what they're aiming at, more or less. Uh, they they offer you some sort of uh, uh, program or procedure to bring about success. That's their their system, if you will. It's somewhat of a power source that they're offering to you. Uh, um, they're trying to sell you something. 
it's kind of interesting if, if their mentality is like, if you have this, or if you have that, then you would know success, then you would grow. If you had their program especially, you would grow. See, they have all you need for success in ministry. I personally choose to ignore those gimmicks. I, I don't follow those concepts at all. Uh, I walk away from them. Generally, uh, it's because it's because those concepts come across and teach the church that it is missing something. That's what bothers me the most about it. It's, your church is missing something. And by the way, that group has it. And if you want it, you can buy it from them. And that kind of bothers me. I wonder how the Apostle Paul ever managed to plant so many churches in the New Testament without these people, without their help. I'm not just here to rant on them because I'm not here to tell you anything. I'm here to show you something today. To show you something. Because power is not the need of the church. It is not the need of the church. The need of the church is knowing that the power is already given. We already have it, folks. We have it. We just don't know it. And that's what Paul's prayer is all about here in Ephesians 1. It's these things you have in Christ Jesus. These are the investments God has made in us as believers. Not one of these items that we have read in chapter 1 is missing in his church. He has given to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Is that true? Everyone? Including power? Uh-huh. Here we go. You ready? It's already something we have. It's already something we have because it's what God has already given to us so that we would have all that we need to serve Him. Our biggest need then is to know Him. And that's what He said in verse number 17. When He started these words, He says, Speaking of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, He may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. You see, we need to know Him, what He has done and who He is, that we may know what we have. And so Paul's prayer in verse 18 was that the eyes of the heart may be enlightened. Opened up so you could see. You see? Matter of fact, the way it's worded, and I've said this several times now, because we've been on this verse for a while, the fact is, the way it's written in the Greek text, your eyes have already been enlightened. He's already done that. You're just carrying about his word right now, aren't you? You've got it in front of you? Does it say it in black and white? He has given these things to us? And do we know that? Yes. See, he's already enlightened us. He's already made it possible for us to know these things. You have the hope of his calling. Do you know that? Yes. You have, by virtue of his inheritance, the re- the riches of His glory. That's an incredible verse we spent some time on. I told you last week that Church of Christ is not a pulper. 
And I'll tell you this today, that the church that belongs to Christ is not impotent either. It is not powerless. See, this is what we must know. Verse 19, here it is. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's a phrase we're going to work through a little bit here. And just for fun, I like to pun sometimes. This is a powerful verse. It's full of power. The, the Greeks have a way of uh, expressing things so, so uh, carefully and with such detail that they don't just use the word power. They have at least four words for the word power. Because each one has its own little detail of what power concept it's trying to express. So they, they, you even translate power. We just see power in English. And to them it could be four, five, six different words that pop up on the page. For example, there's the word dunamis. You've heard dunamis before because we use it for dynamite. Uh, it's the idea of, of power. Uh, I always try to step away from it a little bit when people say, yeah, it's dynamite. Because dynamite blows things up. When it's done, there's just pieces all over the place. Uh, this actually is a better word for ability. More times than not, when you see the phrase, God is able, you found the word dunamis right there in the sentence. <laughs> because it's talking about what he is able to do. It's ability. Now, there's another word, energia. You want to guess what English word comes from that? The word energy. Energia is a Greek word. It's the operating power. It's the operating activity that comes from a power. Uh, there's another word. It's called kratos. Kratos. And it talks about strength as exercised. Strength as exercised. And then there's another one called ischus. I-S-C-H-U-S. Ischus. Uh, it's, it's a power or a Sometimes they use the word virtue. Possessed whether you use it or not. You just have it. Whether you need it, whether you don't, you have that power. Uh, you can illustrate this somewhat with a car battery, when it's properly charged, of course. Uh, you have a battery in your car that has the ability to do something. And it has the power possessed, even if you're not using it. It still has that power within it. To do something. And when you use it, it provides that operating activity, which we call energy, to produce results. Strength. Now, here's what I think is pretty neat. We're talking about the power here of God. And what we see in verse number 18, 19, all four of those are in the same verse. All four of those words are here in this verse. I'm going to read it to you in a literal way that it comes and I'll help you with some of this, uh, where the words fit in as we go. But this is what it would say. What is the overthrowing greatness of the ability, that's dunamis, of him in us who believe, according to the operating activity, which is energy, you may have working, of the force, that's kratos, the strength is exercised, of the power possessed, which is the might 
of him. All four of those words are in the same sense. That is powerful. Now, you may be a little worn out just listening to that. Trying to come to grips with the concepts. But here's what's interesting about it. Since all four of them are functioning in this verse, I stop and ask two things. Whose is it? It's his. And where is it? It said, in the middle of the verse, it's the greatness of his power toward us. You see that phrase, toward us? Very interesting little phrase, toward us. In English, we you may have un... Uh, what's the word here? The King James. Us word. It's almost, you have to stop to think to say it right. Us word. The power us word. Um, for us. You might have that phrase in your translation. Toward us is common. To us. The power to us. And, and it almost makes it sound like, like it's a directional thing. Like it's coming toward us. Right? His power coming toward us. But actually, this is little preposition, ice, is into, in the Greek word. Into us. Into us. It, I believe it speaks more of a position than it does of a direction here. A position, because uh, this is where his power is found in this verse. It is his power, but it's found where? In us. You say, well, how do I know it's in us? Because this is kind of strange. Uh, do we have it now, or are we waiting for it? That's really what the question comes down to. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, you could just turn a couple of pages and see this verse. Paul writes it in verse 29, chapter 1 of Colossians. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, there it is again, his power, which mightily works, Boy, he's combining the words again. Where is it? Within me, Paul says. Within me. I could show you that in a lot of other verses, and I will in a few minutes. But this is Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. Not that that power uh, that you're seeking for it and you're hoping it shows up, but this power is in you, and he wants you to know it. That you may know this power that is in you. With power equipment, generally you get an instruction manual, which of course we don't read, but uh, it's there anyway. I have yet, I, I guess maybe some people do this, but I don't know anybody, who would just go out and buy the instruction manual without the tools. You say, well, what good is that? Why, why do you just want the instruction manual? That, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, would it? To say, here's your instruction manual, but there's no tool to go with it. Paul's telling us here, he's, he wants us to know it because we have it. Not because we're waiting for it. Not because we're looking for it. But we have it. We have it. What do you know about God's power? Well, what's he say? It is surpassingly great. Right? Verse 19. It's surpassingly great. Hupobalo. Great little Greek word. Uh, in baseball circles, it's an error to overthrow. In God's theology, it's wonderful. 
when you hear this word. He overthrows. Overthrows. That's his kind of greatness. Whatever you may conceive right now in your mind as a limitation, and I know we we don't see God with limitations, do we? But imagine the farthest you could possibly conceive power to be able to function from its source. We have concepts in our our, our, uh, science today that they try to express the uh, distance of light rays. And they try to express the, the, the point of, of time that goes from when it leaves its source and when it arrives. And I can't even fathom the thought when they use such terms like that. And yet, when we try to conceive how far does God's power, does it ever diminish as it goes? Does it ever weaken as it gets further from its source? No, it does not. See, trying to put a limitation on this is hard, isn't it? But here's what I want you to think. Whatever you might think is as far as it could possibly go, the verse says it goes even farther, because it goes beyond, beyond. It's overpassing. It's over surpassing in greatness. It goes beyond whatever we think it could possibly be. It goes beyond that. This is part of what Paul says in chapter 3. Look at verse number 20 here. In Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him, I love these words, who is able, there's our dunamis again, to do far more abundantly beyond. Now, put all those words together and try to put it in one word. It's hard. It is about the most excessive type of phrase you can possibly use in a word. Far more abundantly beyond all. Not some. All that we ask or think according to the power, there's that word dunamis again, that works, there's the energy, where is it? You see? Within us. God's power. Surpassingly great. Where's it located? Ooh. Isn't this exciting? Just start thinking. Thinking through. What kind of power is this? This is the power that God used to create the world. You know, he used a word, right? Let there be. And there was. Is there power in that? They consider the world and all that's designed in this world. Uh, In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes there and he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. You look at creation and you understand that God made that by his power. And his power is eternal. That's the power of God seen in creation. Now, his power is also seen in resurrection. You're right here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 20, which we're eventually going to reach. It speaks of the same power which he brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. God's power seen in the resurrection. I, I'm not even sure how to put that down theologically or, or even in a physical or, or physiological type of way. God takes a body that's dead, gives it life. That's an incredible concept. That's his power. That's what he is able to do. It's kind of funny how we limit him. Do you realize we do? We limit him so much. Lord, if only you could find a way to get that envelope in our mailbox this week. He created the world. He can handle the mail. How many times do we limit him in such phrases like that? Lord, if only you could. Ooh. How often do we say that? If only. If only. This is his power. This is his power. It created the world. It brought about resurrection. We're going to know that too, by the way, someday. We're going to be changed in our resurrection to the image of Christ. We're going to stand before... What a glorious thing that's going to be. It's like, wow, that's his power that changes us. And he's going to do that too. We're going to know it firsthand. This is his power. His power. I underscore that as I go all the way through. His power. His power. His power. If you go home and look in the mirror, you're not going to see it in you. It's his power. It's not your power. It's his power. It's not my power. Matter of fact, I already know my condition. Scripture tells me that. My previous condition, it says, while I was still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. <laughs> helpless, that means no power, by the way. Okay? No strength, no power, nothing. That's the way we were found. And what's our present condition? Our present condition. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians uh, 4.7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, he says, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We're compared to a clay pot. When's the last time you walked into a store, saw all the clay pots there and said, that's power. You never associate power with a clay pot. You treat it with care, because you know if you drop it or shatter you, you take care of it, perhaps. You, you know it's not even for, sometimes it's not even for a glorious purpose. It's just, I've got to put that plant in it and set it outside, right? We, we use clay pots so commonly. They're replaceable. That's why they're gen, generally inexpensive. You break that one, you go out and get another one. But we don't look at them as power. And that's what Paul says. I, I, I'm nothing but a earthen vessel. I'm nothing but a clay pot. So you understand when you look at that man who's serving and he's nothing but a clay pot, it's not his power. The surpassing greatness of the power is of God, not of him. We have to understand this. It's his power. It's power. So we're without strength and we're clay vessels. God doesn't want us to rest any aspect of our own strength or wisdom on ourselves. He doesn't want us to rest on ourselves. 
He even said this in 1 Corinthians 2.5, So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. The power of God. I was reminded of this just the other day. I don't know where exactly it was I was talking. I know we talked about this in Sunday school too, a a little bit. uh, Speaking of Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac. And in Hebrews, Abraham reckoned God to even be able to bring the dead back to life. What kind of faith is that? That is a faith that's resting on the power of God. And that's what Scripture tells us we must have. That kind of faith on the power of God, on the power of God, on the power of God. We've gone through this whole list in Ephesians chapter number 1 of what he has given to us. He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. How are we going to be that? Go ahead, practice right now. Be holy. All right? What do you do? You, you think, okay, uh, he chose us before the foundation that we'd be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, to the freely, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He's also redeemed us through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He made known to us the mystery of his will. He... We've obtained an inheritance. We go through this whole list and we've done this over and over and over and over. Who's doing all these things? God has done them. He has done them from front to end. He's done every single one of these things. And he doesn't at once say, okay, now you figure out how to run this thing. Like he's handed you this very expensive car and now you've got to figure the rest out. He's done it all, and here's the beauty. He also gives the power for it to function. We say it sometimes this way. He thought of everything, didn't he? Absolutely everything in the Christian life. He's done it all. It was drawn to my attention this past week that there are 1,050 commands in the New Testament for the believers. How many have you done lately? He said, I didn't know there was 1,000. I was asked, how many do you think it was? And I took a wild guess. I said, there must be, I don't know, 1,500. I I wasn't that far off. 1,050 was the actual number. You know, 75 of those commands are what you should be. What you should be. Let's just take one, for example. Be ye holy as I am holy, God said. How are you doing on that one? Once you get that one down, you only have 1,049 more to go. But let me ask you this. With all these things that we are to be, and that doesn't even include the list of what we're to do, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? Do you ever feel like your list is full for a day? Of all the things you need to do? You've got to be here, you've got to do that. I've felt that on occasion. How do you do all that? You say, well, you know, I just one thing at a time. How do we do all this that we've been called to, that he has made us to be? There are two verses I combine. I always like to combine these two verses because they fit beautifully together. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus said these words, I am the vine and you are the branches. 
He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That phrase always stops me when I'm thinking it through and reading it again. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. That's quite a phrase. Now, the verse I like to attach to that is Philippians 4.13. You already know that one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They say the same thing. Do you realize that? They say the same thing. If we're left to ourselves, we can't do a thing. If we do it in Christ, we can do anything. That's what the two verses say when you put them together. Through Him, I get the strength, the power. It is His power. It is His power. I underscore that because where is it? In us. How many times have we said, I can't do that? You know, there's some truth in that. You can't. (laughs) Who can? He can. It's amazing what he can do through us, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. But I want to present something more as I go through this, because once we start to talk about his power in us, uh, there are dangers that could creep in there. They're pretty easily uh, brought about. Let's try this first. Go back to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And you work your way over to verse number 25. Very familiar story for us, so I don't have to explain it greatly here. Matthew 14:25. I'm right in the middle of an of a episode going on in the life of the disciples. Basically, they're out in the water in a boat. All right? And it says in verse uh, 24, or 25, In the fourth watch of the night he came to them, that's Jesus, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified and said, It is a ghost! I love that. It is a ghost! They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, You knew this was coming, right? Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come! Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, came toward Jesus. Hey, that's going pretty good. He's walking on the water, folks. He's walking on the water. How? His skill. He he just bought these new special hydroplaning shoes. He's walking on the water. Say, okay, yeah, I remember that part, but read the next verse. Verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? We can easily lose our focus. We know Peter lost his here. He's walking on the water. Things going pretty good for a while. But we know that his eyes were moved off of the Lord and onto this 
surroundings. He saw the waves. He became fearful. Uh, it was the Lord who was holding him up the first place, right? When he started walking on the water, it was the Lord holding him up. Do you know it was also the Lord who allowed him to sink? It was the Lord who picked him back up again after he sank. A little shaken, a little wet. We would like to say maybe a little smarter. You know, he never asked for that again. We don't have any record that Peter said, hey, let's try that again. We don't have that. We don't even have him mentioning it in his epistles. You know, maybe that wasn't a good moment. But it's interesting how this thing is based on faith. That's what Jesus said, right? Oh, you of little faith. Faith in Christ. Power belongs to him, right? We're putting these together. If we do not walk or work by faith, we don't have our eyes on him. That's what it comes down to. And we're sunk. Because now we're trying to function and do something that's of spiritual nature with physical power. That's impossible, folks. Spiritual activity requires spiritual power. God's work demands God's power. And sometimes we substitute those, don't we? With some artificial thing that we call our own. See, faith is an absolute. It's an absolute in Scripture. It's not an optional thing. Faith is an absolute in Scripture. Nothing else would do and nothing else would work. And that is true for the church. That is true for the church. It's true for each of us as individuals too. We must not function any other way than by faith in the Lord who is the one who provides our powers. The only thing that we're called to do is keep our eyes on Him. That's called faith. That's a danger we have because, you know, when things start to work right, we tend to start to look around a little bit and say, hey, we're doing pretty good. You know, another danger that steps in there, it's called pride. It's very much like that, but, but here's what the problem with pride is. Uh, as we start to see things develop and start to work, we start to take a little credit for it. Oh, not, not us. Right? Those other people have that problem. Paul says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. Philippians 1.6. He will complete it. He starts it, he completes it. Sometimes we operate with the idea that he starts it and then he says, no, you finish it. That's not the way it works. I don't know how many times this happened when my children are growing up, they're just toddlers, they've learned to walk a little bit and we're walking with them, holding their hand, and then they start to pull that hand back. I could do it myself. Remember those days? Some people are still there. I could do it myself, right? Are we like that? It comes to spiritual things, the ministries the Lord has given to us. Lord, we could do this ourselves. Maybe not intentionally. But when do we reach that place where we start to, to base our ministries, our Christian walk, uh, all these things on the strength of ourselves? I can do it. You know that's the equivalent of pride? James tells us this in James 4, verse 6. He gives, great, he gives greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. I like to think of that as, as, as if I'm pushing this giant rock or round object up a hill. And I'm getting confident that I'm going to make it. And on the other side, it's God pushing it back. Who's going to win? You know the word opposed? It's kind of interesting. James says here, God is opposed to the proud. That is a military term. He has set himself for battle. You want to fight with him? You know what? He's undefeated. And he will always be undefeated. He has set himself for battle against the proud. That is a danger. (laughs) That we don't want to go down that road, do we? When it comes to trusting in accomplishing what we're called to do, we must trust His strength. Anytime we insert anything else, we have taken our eyes off of Him and we've inserted ourselves in the equation. You see it? That's our danger. That's our danger. Three times in Scripture, God says He's opposed to the proud. Do you think that He means that? Three times He brings up that phrase. It's a terrible thing, pride is. And I hope we never contract that disease. That's why I think it's a part of this prayer. (laughs) That's why Paul's praying it. He says, I pray, I pray that you understand, that you know what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us. He will say it again in chapter 3. For this reason, he says in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. And he's not done yet. When he gets to chapter 6, toward the end, he says, Finally, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. They must have had a, an issue there that he had to keep reminding them. It's God's power. It's God's power. It's God's power. I like this verse too. This is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do it as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Think of what that must look like. Imagine a whole church, a whole congregation. Just, you can see the folks here. Imagine every one of them serving completely by God's strength. What kind of service would that look like around here? Wow. What is God able to do? He says, if you're serving folks, serve by His strength. That's the way we're supposed to do it. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. See, the power is His. power is His. And that power, He has invested in you. That's Ephesians 1. He has invested that in you, so that you would have everything you need, that you may serve Him. I have just eliminated one phrase out of your entire vocabulary now. I can't. Right? Oh boy, wait till the elders come and ask you if it's the next time they need somebody to fill a position. Nah. This is a prayer concern. Why? Because we need to know what God has done. 
This is what he's done. I am so thankful for this passage. It, it, it's humbling to me. And yet it's so exciting and encouraging to me. Because when I, I take my eyes off of myself and I think of what he is able to do and what he is doing, I say, that's incredible, Lord, that you would choose somebody like me to invest this in, to bring about your glory. You want to be a part of that? That's Paul's request, that you may know it. That you may know it. Heavenly Father, you know every single person in this room and our relationship with you. And Lord, if there might be some among us who do not know Christ as Savior, by your power, through your wisdom, through your word, through your spirit, draw that person to yourself, for you are able to save. And we thank you, Lord, for that. You have saved us, and we are, we are so grateful that you would look down upon this world and see us as we were. You should choose us and make us your own, and then invest all this in us that we may serve you. We are not powerless, Lord, to serve your great name or to do your great work because it's your power that resides within us to do it. Help us to know it, Lord. And with that, give us the courage just to do it. To walk forward in faith. To know that this is your will and this is your work. And it's your way. And help us, Lord, to understand it. That we might do it for your honor and for your glory. Thank you for your power. Thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.